Okay, keep an eye outside the window. Make sure you don't see any of our members blowing by. I think half of them have blown away this morning already. A couple of just uh, brief announcements before we begin with prayer and our Bible study for today. There is a devotional booklet in your member mailbox. There's one per household. It's entitled, Behold the Man. And our hope and uh, goal as pastors is to have all of us as congregation doing some sort of a study or reflection during the 40 days of Lent, uh, which is uh, two weeks away, okay? Uh, Or, well, a week and a half. So Ash Wednesday, uh, we'll start the 40 days. Keep in mind, if you're one of these bean counter types, um, there are more than 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter. That's because technically Sundays are not really part of Lent. Okay, Um, and you have to understand the way the early church, you know, they didn't really worry about specific numbers per se. So it's kind of like today is sexagesima, which is approximately 60 days before Easter. And last Sunday was septuagesima, which is approximately 70 days, right? So you're like, we're missing like three days, which is probably how you feel anyway, if you're like me throughout the week. Uh, that you're, you're missing a few days, you can use more hours uh, or days in the week. Um, so that was just, just part of the tradition. So uh, pay attention, um, late service people, to our text for today. The, these pre-Lent Sundays really kind of help to set a foundation for Lent itself, uh, for the penitential time of Lent. Um, and early service people, just meditate on what you heard today. Um, Pastor Grady, I don't believe you were born in 1945. You look really good. Or actually, you said you would have been 14 in 1945. So you're doing really good. Um, but um, excellent, excellent, excellent sermon today, Pastor. Very, very well said. Uh, thank you for giving us the word. Light sea service people, you're in for a treat. Um, so, okay. Any other uh, housekeeping items before we get into our Bible study for today? Okay. The Lord be with you. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully grant that by your power we may be defended against all adversity. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Okay, the book we are studying um, uh, is The Saving Truth, Doctrine for Lay People by Reverend Dr. Kurt Marquardt, who went to be with the Church Triumphant in 2006, 2007, I believe it was. And uh, this, this has been a, a great book. If you've ordered this book and you have it, don't wait to read depending on what we're doing here in Bible class. Because our goal here in Bible class is going to be not necessarily to take this book word for word, but to emphasize some of the various concepts and especially share with you some of the great nuggets, the beautiful golden law and gospel nuggets that Professor Marquardt wrote. Okay, so go ahead and read all the way through it, mark it up, and then as we go through it uh, with you as pastors, we'll have different things uh, that we emphasize as well. I do want to do just a little bit of review. Um, um, I'm hoping to be able to get through all of chapter one. We'll just kind of see where we go with this. Um, But uh, let's, uh, page seven in your book, I'm just going to do some quick review before we get into some specific stuff, and both Pastor Grady and I have covered a few of these things already, but... I've highlighted, it's showing up highlighted, right? You didn't turn it off, did you? 
Where did I, did I, page seven, is that the one I told you? Hold on a second. Where are you at, scripture? No, that's not it. You're on page 15. Go back, hold on, Nicole, oh, go back, go back, go back. Hold on, sorry, people. <laughs> Testimony, it's, okay, there we go. That's a good place to start, okay. So we're on page seven in the book. If, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> You're making me nervous. Page seven in your book. According to Holy Scripture's testimony to itself, it is God's own very word, teaching, message, and truth. Uh, and uh, great stuff for you to underline or highlight here. Scripture does not merely contain the divine word. Go down to the next sentence. It is itself God's word. So one of the fundamental truths that Morcourt has been highlighting for us, we need to understand, is Scripture is the word, and the word is Scripture. And he's going to talk a little bit more, while not specifically using uh, the term logos, that's exactly what it is. So Jesus is the word, uh, the word as well is Christ. Okay? Uh, he goes on to talk in the next paragraph there that the present writer vividly remembers a lecture on this subject given some years ago in Brisbane, Australia, by a liberal theologian. Paper had two parts. In the first part, the lecture showed from the sort of text quoted above that for Jesus and his apostles, the Old Testament scriptures were without exception or qualification the inspired, authoritative, infallible written word of God. That's really not argued too much in theological academic circles. Okay? Part of the reason is we have um, uh, some archaeological uh, evidence. The Dead Sea Scrolls were also very helpful when they were found right around World War II. Um, so we know the readings that they were using in the synagogue uh, or synagogues at the time of Christ. Um, and uh, so that, that's not really open for debate, okay? Um, however, uh, then here comes the part two of the question. Do we today have to agree with this judgment of Jesus and the apostles? So modern-day theologians and sometimes Christian laypeople um, will say, okay, we accept we get the Old Testament, um, and, and perhaps even the New Testament, and we recognize that Jesus uh, and the prophets and the apostles, that they held to all that was in the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God, but just because they did, does that mean we have to also? Okay, And that kind of becomes the question, and I would have an easy answer for that. I hope you would too. Um, but that's kind of how it's appeared to. And, and keep in mind, this is all part of the postmodern thing. Truth is, is relative, it's personal, it's what I make of it. That's kind of how uh, we've been taught. Uh, the word inspiration, further down, itself has been a frequent victim of verbal abuse. Someone may say that Scripture is, quote, inspired, and means simply that it is inspiring, like a Shakespeare, a Shakespeare sonnet, perhaps. So one of the things we have to do is we have to always make sure that we define the words and the vocabulary that we're using. And perhaps you have encountered this with some of your other uh, Christian friends, even non-Lutherans. So with some of my Roman Catholic friends um, and even colleagues, uh, the word grace, we have a completely different definition of the word grace. We both use the word grace in our churches, but the definition is completely different, okay? Uh, for grace, uh, for us as Lutherans, in a very simple fashion, it's, it's that given to you that you, ha you don't deserve or that you haven't earned. 
In the Roman Catholic Church, grace becomes now literally a power and ability for you to do that which God would have you do. Got it? So, so totally different. So they would still say grace is a gift. They'd say, oh yeah, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we agree with that. But then they would add additional definition to it. Okay, so you always want to make sure you define you know, your words because you can talk with people, hey, wow, we sound like we're, we're right on the same page, hey, cool, you know, and they're, you're working off two different definitions. Okay, so always make sure you define the words. On uh, next page, uh, he talks about uh, the church uh, coin terms, two terms here, plenary inspiration. Raise your hand if you have heard this term before. When I read this book, uh, uh, I had never come across this term plenary or plenary inspiration. Hadn't come across it in all my years of seminary and all my years of learning since. I just hadn't had anybody that explained it this way. This was a new thing for me. So just so you know, your pastors don't know everything uh, and, and they're learning a lot. And, and, and verbal inspiration, everybody's heard of verbal inspiration, okay? But, but look at his definition here. The first, plenary inspiration, means that inspiration is full or comprehensive. And that's a beautiful way to think about it. Okay? So inspiration, meaning that it's, it's not just applicable to small, tiny portions, but rather it's plenary, meaning it's what? It's full, right? So, so the, you know, uh, uh, what is that psalm? Oh, is that, oh, help me out, pastors. Psalm uh, 16, in, in his presence there is fullness of joy. Is that 16? Something like that. You're just nodding your heads. You don't know either, do you? Uh, <clears throat> so that there's, there's a fullness of joy in God's presence, and, and this is now the, the fullness of, of Scripture. Okay? And he says the second is that it embraces the very words of the text, okay? um, that, that it, 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 it is verbal. So neither term goes uh, one whit beyond 2 Timothy 3.16, and we looked at that, and I think Pastor uh, Grady, you kind of took us through some of these passages last week. If all Scripture is inspired, then inspiration is plenary, right? It's full. It's comprehensive. And since all Scripture consists of words, inspiration is necessarily verbal, okay? So it goes on in the next paragraph, on the contrary, the terms verbal and plenary safeguard not the how, but the what of God-inspiredness, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. Okay? And that leads us down, he goes into and talks now about the Nicene Creed, uh, you know, uh, where we have uh, uh, God who, who spoke, or the old version, if you would have had that, who spake by the prophets. Okay? Um, from there, then, we go into inerrancy and infallibility. He introduces that concept. Uh, the first term, inerrancy, means without error. And the second term, infallibility, means unable to deceive. And the Latin roots, he writes, of both words occur in this clear-cut confession from the large catechism. My neighbor and I, in short, all men, all of us, sinners, may err and deceive, but God's word cannot err, right? It can't. Uh, there, 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 there is no error in it. And he goes on to say, yes, God says so, but on this point I respectfully disagree is even logically absurd. And so, you know, uh, I have not only had to wrestle with this as I have matured over the years, um, you know, with, wow, that's what it says in the Bible. <laughs> I don't really like that. I remember, you know, being a young man before I was married, 
And there were some things that Scripture said about how men and women were to conduct themselves, and I didn't really like what that had to say. I mean, you know, most people don't. And so then you kind of got two choices. You know, one, you know, you go and sin, and in most cases, sin boldly, and figure it's easier to uh, ask for forgiveness than it is for permission, okay? Which is not a good way to do it, by the way. Um, but that, that becomes kind of the, the, the process. Um, or you humble yourself at God's word and say, this is right and this is wrong, and I'm going to work really hard on not doing this or that or the other. Okay? Um, I appreciated Pastor grading your sermon. I don't want to share it. I don't want to share too much because we got late service people here, right? But we encounter this as pastors quite a bit. In, in our day and age, uh, it, it's very common uh, for people to, you know, not get married, you know? And, and some people will thumb their noses in marriage. I don't need to be married. I've made a commitment uh, to someone, and I know what my promise is. It doesn't matter what God has to say or what the state has to say or what anybody thinks, but God's Word speaks really specifically uh, on that, on sexuality, on immorality, um, on obeying the state. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've had those problems in our families, both sides of our family, and I doubt most of your families have probably... You know, is that, do I see you nodding heads? You know, and, and it doesn't just stop there. I mean, that, you know, nowadays those things have become very accepted or we're not going to talk about them, but, you know, then you get into other hot button, hot button topics or issues, abortion, you know, homosexuality, I think, is one of the other, just sexuality in general. Um, you know, the, the whole um, uh, transgender issue, I mean, and some of these things can hit very close to home for some of us, Okay. Because I would, I, would, I would guess that probably the majority of us here have been um, touched by, that's not the right way to say it, um, <laughs> have had to deal with that in some way in our families, right? Or our friends, or our coworkers. And that's part of living in the world. But remember, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. You're called to be out of the, you're called out of the world. So God calls you to be a light, and, and being a light is, 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 is hard work. It's hot and it's bothersome uh, in the midst of darkness. And so, so being a Christian is not easy. People are not going to automatically like you, and they're not going to be lining up your, your door to be friends. Right? You're going to lose Facebook friends over some of what you have to say. Okay. Some of you older people have no idea what I just said. <laughs> so he's on the bottom of page 8. He says, uh, so yes, God says so, but on this point I respectfully disagree, and that's, that's a common tactic. You know, yeah, I know that's what God says, but, but I disagree with that. Well, when you're on the opposite side of God, that's not a good place to be. Okay? Not a good place to be. He goes on the top of page 9, the objection that inerrancy is not taught with the Bible really amounts to the quibble that the word inerrancy is not found there. So some people will play this argument, well, you guys are all about the Bible being inerrant and inspired, but the word inerrant, that's not, we don't find that word anywhere in Scripture. But you also don't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Scripture. Nor, will I say, do you find the word sacrament. Unless you're working off of a Latin translation, okay, where you deal with mysterion, okay, which is actually where the, the whole translation thing works. But does God tell us that he's a Trinitarian God? Absolutely. So when you talk with your Mormon friends or the Jehovah's Witnesses, 
You see the nice uh, young boys or the people walking down the street. Um, if you've got time, um, invite them in and give them your day-old donuts or whatever you got. Um, you know, if, if you think you can put up with what they have to say, I would tell you this. Are you ready? You may not have had a pastor tell you this before. Occupy as much time as you can. Because that keeps them away from the weaker sheep. Dead serious. The more time you take for some of these, uh, you know, non-Christian, quote, missionaries, the less time they're going to have for people that are weaker than you. I know it's annoying. You're going to come to me and you're going to be like banging your head against the wall, you know, and, and we'll help you as pastors. We'll arm you with a little bit, but, you know, that's so. Now, if, if, if you feel you might, you know, not be strong enough, then certainly don't do that. Okay, that's not for everybody, but if you can take up their time. We, we haven't done it in a while, but we did it several times. The young Mormon missionaries, I mean, these guys are 17, 18, 19 years of it. They're away from the home. Um, they're, they're literally foreigners in a, in a strange land. We'd invite them over. We've had them over for supper. Uh, they played ball with our boys, you know, on the weekend. And, uh, and they really appreciate that, too. You know, so we're, we're, still, we're still fellow, not only American citizens, but uh, Christians are also called to be hospitable, Right? So don't throw eggs at them as they walk away from your door. Uh, how did we get on that topic? He goes on, properly printed multiplication tables are inerrant. So one of the ways to understand what we're talking about Scripture, and, and this is where we literally have to unwind ourselves of the postmodern wrapping that we've been given, most of us here, especially through our, our education. Um, is that uh, multiplication systems, there, there's no real discussion on does 2 plus 2 equal 4. Does anybody here disagree that 2 plus 2 equals 4? All of us would probably agree that's fact, right? That's fact. Um, how about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? See, for us as Christians, we would also believe that that's fact. Now, I listened of all things, and some of you are going to look it up. The ELCA has an archive video section on YouTube, and if you're really curious in this, send me an email this week, and I'll, I'll forward it to you. It is an interview that was done back in 1974, and so it's, it's really bad video. It's not, you know, there, there won't be anything wrong with your big, you know, expensive 4K flat screen TV, um, because <laughs> video was just that bad back then. Um, and, and it's an interview with four people on both sides of the Seminex issue in St. Louis. And at, at, there, were, there were a couple of issues going on then when that happened, but this affected, as you know, I mean, the whole Missouri Senate. The battle for the Bible, uh, there was some other political stuff going on that I'll let some of our, our older pastors or members, if they want to speak to any of this, they can. Um, my, my dad was at St. Louis Seminary two years before the walkout. And he got frustrated with some of the politics that even affected Springfield uh, Seminary. And then he switched into the MA program at St. Louis. And then he just threw his hands up and said, I don't want to be a pastor. Um, and you know what? To be fair, that's, I, I have a hard time seeing my dad. He's, he's kind of always been a pastor type. But uh, anyway, um, so, so long story short, so the whole battle for the Bible, historical criticism had reared its ugly head. And so what Marquardt here is going to attempt to teach us here in the next few pages is exactly what this historical criticism is, okay? And before going into specifics with that, 
where he starts is where we always need to start. Is the Bible the Word of God or not? And so sitting down at this, um, it's like an hour and 15 minutes, this interview. On one side is, um, oh boy, how did I forget his name? Um, Tom Baker. Remember Tom Baker? Um, So Tom Baker was a graduate student at St. Louis, and he first served there at, it was in University City, St. Thank you, St. James, that's what I was thinking. Um, And he used to have the radio show, uh, what was the one he had on KFUO forever? Do you remember the name of it? Yeah, I think he did Law and Gospel, didn't he, with Tom Baker? Yeah, Uh, and I haven't heard too much of him in the last, you know, three, four years, but when we were living and working in St. Louis before seminary, I was always listening to him and other guys on the radio. had Tom Baker, and the other guy they had representing the conservative side was Herman Otten. And this video should be required for all first-year seminarians or any lay people interested in, in diving into this whole issue of, is the Bible the Word of God or not? And the, what's amazing about it is they're, all of them are so calm and cool and cool. I mean, it's 1974 and they're on TV, right? So, you know, if you, if you come to like a pastor's conference nowadays where people disagree with each other, it's not something we want to show the rest of you. Uh, <laughs> emotions tend to fly a little high sometimes, and so I was really impressed with how these four men kept their emotions under control and just spoke to the issues. The other, they had two other guys then on the other side. One was a fourth-year seminary, and I forget his name. The other guy was, uh, was I want to say Roth, I think was his name. He was head of Elam at the time, Evangelical Lutherans and Mission. Um, and so here's the gist of the conversation. Were Adam and Eve real people? Roth and the fourth-year seminarian basically said, we don't know. It could have been some sort of a metaphor. Okay? And so Herman Otten and Tom Baker, they did such a good job. They were pulling out all these quotes from people at the time um, and from some of these guys sitting across from them uh, where they said that it doesn't really matter whether Adam and Eve were real human beings. You know, most likely what happened is human beings were already there. You know, so whether it's evolution, they didn't talk that way, but that was the answer. And God just picked two people out of all the people that are already there and called them Adam and Eve and then told the story about them. And then it goes on from there to Jonah and the whale. You know, is Jonah a real person? We all know a real person can't get swallowed by a fish, right? I mean, unless it's like Jaws. <laughs> I mean, so, the, you know, they, they go on all this, you know, and, and, and really what it comes down to is, is the Bible the Word of God or not? Is it true? And I think that's a great question. I believe it is. I've, I've staked my life, my reputation... Um, and, you know, I first did that, actually, when I took confirmation vows in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. I don't think we've got any 7th or 8th graders in here, um, but that's part of what confirmation is. Well, you're confirming, this is what I believe, this is what God's Word says, you know. And, and, and many of our youth are ready for that, and I'm not going to poke the bear, but we talked about that before. There also, I think, are some 7th, 8th graders that aren't maybe ready to make such a vow. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. You tell me when you figure it out. We'll keep doing what we've been doing. We're going to teach. We're going to let God's Word work. Let's move on before I get myself in trouble. (laughs) So St. Paul said, middle of page 9, 
Um, I believe everything, and the translation there is literally all things that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Okay? So such language becomes nonsensical the moment any parts of Holy Scripture are declared open to debunking as erroneous or mistaken. So I've had conversations with people when they talk, well, Apostle Paul, you know, he really beats down women. Uh, he's a complete male chauvinist, and Moses had to be as well. Uh, da, 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 da. And if Jesus were here, he would never say anything like that. Um, and so because of that, that can't be God's word. That's just Moses' opinion or Paul's opinion. So now once you start applying that, where do you stop? How do you decide? That becomes a great question, right? So, so there was a, what was it called, the Jesus Project or something back in the, when was that, 70s or 80s? where they went through all of Scripture and they decided to color code or highlight the whole Bible. And so, you know, green would be, I don't know what it was, 90% certainty that Jesus actually said it. You know, uh, orange would be like 70%. Red was like never happened. And so what you ended up with, can you imagine? <laughs> there was only like, like 10 verses that were like 90% probability or better that Jesus actually said it out of the whole New Testament. Right? So, so that's kind of modern biblical scholarship. That would probably be the, uh, you know, <laughs> where historical critical method uh, takes you to, okay? Of, of just of using history to determine whether the Word of God is true or also determining what it says. Remember that our hermeneutic, okay, uh, there are uh, aspects of historical criticism that are okay to use, Okay, to adopt the whole method is improper because we believe that Scripture interprets. So our hermeneutic is, if we want to understand something in the Bible, where do we go first? The Bible. We don't go to history. Now, history can help inform that. Okay. Um, he's going to go on and talk a little bit about this now. When people, on the middle of page 10, when people talk about some of the, the differences, and Pastor was getting into this, you know, with what is written above Jesus on the cross. Right? So if you see a cross, normally you'll see the four letters I-N-R-I. Those are basically uh, Latin initials. Okay? Um, I for Jesus, N for Nazareth, R for Rex, I for Hudion, okay? which means Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So the I-N-R-I, when you see that on a cross, uh, that's exactly what it means. Okay? I remember as a kid when I would see this stuff in church, I'd come up with all sorts of funny things, um, you know. Uh, oh, we were driving down the highway to uh, the uh, play. Uh, if you don't have anything going on this afternoon at 3 o'clock, there's a play down at Lutheran High School, Into the Woods. They're doing the whole musical. And for a little high school of 250 kids, I was, we were blown away by it. Uh, it's like three hours long with an intermission, but you get free cookies, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, really good. As we were driving down the highway yesterday uh, to, to go, you know, we were passing by some of the stores. I said, what's this store I keep seeing? Uh, R-U-E-21. And I asked my wife, I said, is that like a girl's store? Or what, what do they sell there? And she goes, oh, yeah, it's for like teeny boppers or, you know, or young people. And I said, well, what does that stand for? Are you even 21? Are you? <laughs> so we kind of play that like word association game when we see initials like that. So just I-N-R-I, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Which is really interesting because Pilate, Pontius Pilate, perhaps without knowing it, spoke the truth. 
And remember what the Jews wanted to say. They said, no, 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 we want you to change that. We want you to say that he said that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. So pay attention as we go through Lent here. You're going you're to come face to face with some very objective truth. Not subjective. Objective truth. Fact. That God lays before you and me in Holy Scripture. And a Christian now in faith grabs hold of that. And says, I believe. That's mine. I want that. Okay? Uh, kind of bottom page 10. Let nobody suppose that he has tasted of the Holy Scripture sufficiently unless he's ruled over the churches with the prophets for a hundred years. So be very careful when you start jumping in and say, well, does the Bible really say that? Right? Uh, or you, you know, have Bible study in your house, you're doing it on your own, you know, and you, you know, you've been taught by, by <laughs> unfortunately, some false teachers. What does this say to me? When you study your Bible, do you just promise me you're not going to do that. Don't, don't, don't go there. What does this say to me? Because that, that, first of all, Jesus says, all these scriptures testify to who? You want to learn more about your Bible? Find out what they're saying about Jesus. Okay, play the Where's Waldo game. Okay, and then through that scripture, these things will now apply to you and your life. But if you're looking at the Bible as just some sort of introspective handbook to help me understand who I am, or, or in the words of one of these goofy pastors down in Texas, to have your best life now, okay? Um, I, that, that's totally ridic. ridiculous for you older people, okay? Uh, <laughs> that the, the purpose of Scripture is to point you to Christ. And in seeing and receiving Christ, you then will have fullness of joy, okay? By His uh, power and authority and ability, okay? He goes on to talk about canonicity and canon. Um, and this is important, bottom page 10 here. Um, and he's going to talk about the homologomena and the antilegomena. And this is, this is kind of important for you to understand. So uh, there's a small number of, book, of books, Hebrews, 2 Peter, Jude, James, 2 3rd John, and Revelation, that are called antilegomena. And that means spoken against. And so in the early church, even though they had kind of said, this is the Bible, um, uh, you know, they also had some, some people say, well, I don't really like those books or, or we're not sure about the authorship. Do we know who wrote Hebrews? We don't. We have no idea. We have some good guesses, but we don't, we don't really know who wrote Hebrews. Do we know who wrote, who wrote the Gospel of Luke? <laughs> Luke! <laughs> okay. So you, you have these, these books that they were able to track the authenticity. Any, any collectors in here collect baseball cards or uh, art of, you know, anybody got any cult stuff? Really? <laughs> any of you have really good cult stuff where you have like a letter of authenticity, like establishing, you know, that? Okay. I mean, if you ever sell it, you better have that. Um, and people will ask for that. And so, so we have that with some of the other books in terms of, you know, accepted by the church. But there were other ones that there wasn't a lot of, well, we kind of think this person might have wrote it, but we're not sure. And somebody told us this story, and then somebody told us another story. But we still believe they're the words, you know, of God, and we're, they're going to be in the canon. So that's the anti-legomena, okay? Luther, for example, was less complimentary about James. He did not like the book of James at all. Um, he was afraid too many lay people were going to kind of go to that first. 
and believed that, you know, faith without works is dead, that they were going to put the cart before the horse and think that by doing works you're going to earn salvation. Um, of course, some Lutherans have completely, you know, rejected third use of the law. They're antinomians, and so we should never talk about you doing the right thing uh, or that we're just going to give you the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and, and hope it all shakes out in the end. And we're not that either, right? So we believe works, good works are necessary for your salvation. They don't get you to heaven, but God has created, and read the rest of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and what follows, right? You know, God's created you in advance to do good works, to live in your vocation. That's part of your life. And so we need to talk about that, okay? Um, and then you've got the homologomena, which means confessed by all, the four Gospels, Acts, all the letters of St. Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, um, given the Bible's redundancy, to borrow a, time from, for a term from modern information theory, there's, not, there's, there's more than enough support for every article of faith in the Homo Legomena. So what he's saying is the basic articles of faith, what we believe, are most widely stated in the books that are uh, confessed by all and agreed to. And so if we're going to teach, you know, when we do this for catechism, when we teach uh, the youth, you may not realize this, and go back and look at your catechism. There are primary texts that are associated with your catechism. So when we talk about the words of institution, where do we go? We don't go first to what Paul wrote about it, which wouldn't be bad. We go to what Jesus is recorded as saying in the Gospels. Okay? Same thing we talk about baptism. The first primary text for baptism is, you should all know it, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, so the, the primary text then, so you have these, these Bible texts that we want our youth, we want them to have up here. So that way when pastor asks them a question in Bible class, they can participate. Um, <laughs> you didn't get that one, did you? So, uh, no, so that you are armed with the Word of God. Okay? So Luther talks about uh, an Enchiridion. There's various Enchiridions. Martin Chemnitz, the other Martin, wrote a little Enchiridion, which is really good. Enchiridion literally means small dagger. So Luther's intent with his catechism was people would carry a small dagger with them, kind of like some of you might have a concealed carry permit uh, or carry a weapon in your truck or have at home. You know, you carry something to protect you against those who might harm you in some way. So back in Luther's day uh, and for many other times, people would carry a small dagger hidden somewhere on their body. So an incredian for you is to have the basics of the faith, the articles of the faith, stored away here. That way you would be armed when the devil, the world, and your sinful nature come attacking. Okay? So these primary texts, these articles of faith, we have them in the home, uh, uh, now I can't even say the word, homologomena, um, and then we, you know, we won't go to the anti first, but it's still there to help explain it. Let, let's move on because that's all. Any questions or anything? So far you've just kind of been watching the dog and pony show, we're good. As with inspiration, so with inerrancy, it either applies completely or not at all. So the central Christian mystery of the incarnation will not allow us such a scheme uh, meaning to accept one part but not the other. So I would simply say this, you know, if you claim to be a Christian and you claim to believe the Bible is the Word of God, then that's it. You can't take apart the Bible uh, and say, I'm going to believe this but not the other. And that's what I had pastors uh, and even parents over the years, you know, my own, confront me on various sins that I had committed or my thinking on certain things, which is why it's good to discuss those types of things. What does God's Word say about this? OK? 
okay? Not just popular culture. Now, I do want to read a couple paragraphs on page 12, uh, starting with modern theologians. Are you going to catch up to me as when we start reading? No, you got it. Good job, son. Modern theologians are forever trying to find plausible ways of complimenting Jesus on his good intentions while discounting what he actually said. So this is the whole thing. Jesus is my boyfriend, right? Jesus is my BFF. Jesus is, you know, just this, uh, don't get me started. For example, it has been suggested that in much the same way as a leading expert on Homer is not discredited as regards his classical knowledge if he proves mistaken about local train traffic, so one's belief in Jesus as Lord would not be troubled in the least if he'd been wrong about this and that. And so many Christians play this card. Well, we hear Jesus, you know, calling out, and he talks to the woman at the well. And, you know, and he points out that she's been living with, she's had three or four men she's lived with, and not one was her husband. I mean, first of all, that's rude, right? She's free to live her life however you want, but Jesus is concerned about her. So he points out sin. Well, a modern theologian would say, you know, so Jesus got a few things wrong. <laughs> or so Jesus was a little rude. Right? Remember the, the, the other Samaritan woman who is at the table? And he said, it's not right to take, you know, food for the children and give it to the dogs. I mean, he calls the woman a dog, basically. And a modern theologian would say, oh, he probably just got a little confused, right? That's the way some of you, some of you ladies think about your husbands. You, <laughs> you know, they say something really stupid sometimes. They're not Jesus, first of all. You probably already know that. Don't let them think that. But Jesus is actually Jesus, right? He doesn't do that. He's not like your husband or another man. He's Jesus, God in the flesh. With Jesus, yes means yes and no means no. And, uh, and, and, and he doesn't sin in doing all this. So let me go on. This is good stuff here that Mark Hort's got. Um, so what this admittedly very imperfect analogy overlooks is, while, is that while absent-mindedness amounts to an amusing foible in professors or your uh, husbands, it turns out to be a fatal absurdity in God. God is not a specialist with his own field, accustomed to deferring to other specialists in theirs. Faith confesses Christ not as an authority over a cozy little nook called religion, but as maker and ruler of the universe. The world is full of experts, professors, and authorities of all kinds, and you can look at 1 Corinthians 8.5, but it has only one Redeemer. This is a great passage right here. Let's read it together. I have spoken to you of earthly things, Jesus says, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, the Apostle Peter understood this point from the onset, from the outset. Told by the Lord to put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch, Peter begins to object, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. Had he been a modern theologian, he would have continued, Look, hey, Jesus, buddy, I truly value your advice in matters of religion, but you know what? Leave the fishing to me. <laughs> I do this. I've done this. You, you, you grew up a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I know something about, about fishing. But Peter doesn't do that, does he? Not at all. Instead, uh, Peter now basically checks himself, humbles himself, and says, but because you say so, Jesus, I will let down the nets. So faith, your faith in whatever situation or conundrum you're facing in your life, 
that which you are at odds with God and His Word right now, okay? And if you're not, you probably will be later today at some point because that's the life of a sinner. Faith simply says, at your word, Lord, I'll let down the nets. I don't want to do this, <laughs> okay? I don't want to follow your rules. I don't want to believe that you can bring good out of this situation. I mean, fill in the blanks. But, because you say so, I'm going to do it. So sometimes we have to be reminded to just simply believe. <laughs> it's really simple. Because you say so, God, I don't understand it right now, you know. And he and I have had a lot of talks over the years, and, you know, and if you come to talk to me and you're, you're wrestling with that, I say, well, have you, have you told God all that? And some of you might say, well, he already knows it. Well, of course he knows it, but he invites you to talk to him. Well, I don't want to talk to him because I'm kind of angry at him right now. And I would say, that's exactly what he wants to hear. God's a big, perfect dude, and he can handle whatever you got. And so let's not become completely pietistic and say that our prayers and our talking with God has got to be done on a certain way. If you're struggling with things, let him know. You want some examples of that? Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a pretty whiny guy. <laughs> Look at Moses. Not, now, we're, none of us here are Moses or Jeremiah, so I'm not going to step into that boat that we're prophets in that sense. But you see people of great faith who have a lot of questions. And they go, they go right to God and say, hey, come on, man. I don't get this. I'm not real happy about this. You know, um, now remember all the wrath that God had has been poured upon Jesus. Thank goodness. So <laughs> you can get away with that. <laughs> That's not the right way to look at it either. But talk with him. Okay. And then ultimately where you end up is, okay, I'm tired. You know, I've been dealing with this problem a long time, but because you say so, I'm going to let down the nets which part of it is, is opening yourself up now to him doing some work for you here and now. And more than that, allowing you to see and understand his will. Okay? Um, so. Okay. Uh, he goes on, To err is human, uh, though, uh, though does not... Ins if to err is human, though, does not insistence on inerrancy belittle or even deny the full humanity of Christ and of the Bible? And I've heard some uh, modern scholars say that, in a word, no. Because as God did not become a sinner when he became man, he is not so helpless that he cannot keep his word pure and truthful even when he gives it through sinners in human language. So nowhere does Scripture discount its own or Christ's authority on the grounds of its or his humanity as such. When did he who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God? On the cross. Keep that in mind. Okay? Uh, so Jesus walked a, a perfect life. Uh, and in the midst of doing that, he obviously was fulfilling all the requirements of the law. Uh, moral, ceremonial, ceremonial uh, and civil, uh, or civic law, however you want to understand those breakdowns. Um, but all the, the punishment for sin was then placed upon him at the cross. Okay, so that's when he who knew no sin became sin. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and that's, that's where, and, and that's why, like I told you, we need all sorts of crosses. So the divine mystery of the Bible is a piece 
is of a piece with the mystery of Jesus the God-man. That goes back to what I opened with. Jesus the Word, the Word, Jesus, Logos, uh, it, it, it's all the same, okay? Uh, and we see that, you see that, uh, and you should cling to faith in that even in how we worship. We place great emphasis on the Word of God. So if you open your hymnal, almost everything there in the hymnal for you is referenced with a scripture citation. So really, even the way we worship is what? It's not written by Pastor Grady or me or Juanita, okay, or Monty or Chuck. Although I think Monty and Chuck, if they put their heads together, those guys, they're funny. They could probably <laughs> put together a really nice worship service for you. Um, but, but, but it's God's word, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. Uh, it's, it's, it's God's word, okay? Chuck's a lot funnier when he's been drinking beer, by the way. <laughs> I've got to pick on you because you're so quiet. Okay. You have, we, we have a great uh, president and head elder here. Okay, uh, let's go on. Christian faith, uh, page 13, honors the Bible as God's own word and therefore inerrant, not because that quality stands out as self-evident or can be proved to common sense, but simply because it is the Scripture's own self-testimony. So the Bible claims this about itself. So the divinity of Christ's word lies just as hidden to human wisdom as his sacramental presence is inaccessible to chemical analysis. And I love this thought. One does not poke about the burning bush with Geiger counters. Or do you show up with your little Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass up at the altar after Pastor Grady or Pastor McKay speak the words of Jesus? And you're like, oh, is, this, is it still bread? Is it still wine? What type of wine is that? Are there, are there biological cellular structure present here now that I can see that it's actually body and actually blood? <laughs> Thanks be to God, no. That'd be nasty, right? But it's real. And why do you believe it? Why do I believe it? Because he says so, right? And so we treat it with reverence, okay? That's it. And we do what he says to do with it. We eat and drink it, okay? Okay, any questions before I move on? We're good? What do I got? Four minutes? Oh, this goes by so quick. Our Lord said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. I would like the Lord to say of me, well done. Just like I want my dad, uh, and he's done it over the years, but I still... You know, when, when my dad or my mom tell me that I've done a good job at something, that means a lot to me, okay? And I would hope with, with our children, when we tell them that, that that means a lot to them. I want my Lord and Savior to say that of me. <laughs> I know He knows that I'm not perfect. <laughs> Lord knows He knows that, okay? But, but I want Him to say, hey, <laughs> in spite of all that, good job, okay? I kind of long for that as a Christian. And I hope you long for that uh, from your Father in heaven and your Lord as well. Okay. He's going to go on in 14. I'm kind of going to wrap it up here. Um, he's going to talk a little bit about tradition. Um, and so I'll just introduce that real quick and then we'll call it a day. Um, it was clear the number of notions and practices which had become customary by Luther's time had no support at all in the Bible. Right? So it's kind of like, you know, where do you see, you know, like the outline of the divine service in the Bible? You don't see it. And some people say, well, because, you know, the outline of the service isn't there. You know, God doesn't really give us a liturgy per se. Well, you could, you could play that card with a lot of things, 
But there were also some things back in Luther's time that, that had absolutely no support or connection. Among them were prayers to the saints, praying to people who had died, and people who had been acknowledged by the church as having a higher seat in heaven above anybody else. And remember what happened to the disciples when they got in the whole argument about who's going to sit at your right hand. <laughs> Jesus said, it, 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 that's not for you to know, decide, you know, or whatever. A lot of that's already been ordered. So prayers for the saints, prayers for the dead, purgatory, indulgences, the sacrifice of the mass, and the like. So these became traditions in the church. Okay? Um, and what's overlooked in the midst of all this talk of tradition in the church is John the Evangelist's comment there on page 15, these are written that you may believe. So the emphasis always comes back to the word itself. We start with the word. You can still have traditions. We, we have various traditions in the church, uh, many of which that we've retained. Um, some that maybe you've tried way before I showed up and you didn't like them or they didn't stick. But you've had things that have kind of been part of, of what you do. You know, I'll give you an example of one. You won't find it written down anywhere. Um, it's how, how the sermon begins. So, so, so here's what I was told in a very nice way. Okay, Read the Bible passage you're going to read, and then the lights will go down. <laughs> and if you don't do that, the lights will stay on. <laughs> so I'm a troublemaker, so I said, in the name of Jesus, amen, let's go. <laughs> I'm horrible, I'm sorry. I don't like people telling me what to do. Uh, <laughs> Well, no, I mean, so that's a tradition, right? I mean, it's not a big deal. Some of you probably didn't even notice, or some of you are like, why are the lights still on, man? Or I'm waiting for him to say the Bible passage or whatever. So, you know, and that, it's not a big deal, right? But those are traditions you become accustomed to with, with many other things, okay? So it always comes back to, and I would simply say, what are you, what are you doing? How are you emphasize God's word, okay? Um, so I'm going to end there on page 15 for today. So the New Testament word that we're going to talk about now next week, this is tradition, it's from Latin. It simply means passing on or handing over. And so as I told you before, whenever you talk about a word, you've got to make sure you define it. So what we're going to do next week for Bible study is we're going to start with the definition of tradition. There's actually several kind of definitions. We want to understand what we're working at. Tradition does occur, the word, in Scripture quite a bit. And so we want to talk a little bit about that. From there, we're going to talk about doctrine, uh, which is also a very important word. Okay? All right. Questions? Comments? Guys are kind of quiet. You're just soaking it all up. Okay, who has the book? Raise your hand. A few of you. How many of you have finished it already, read it all the way through? How many of you are halfway? How many of you are just kind of following along with whatever we do in class? All right, that makes me feel better. Pastor Grady, did he leave? Anything, any other announcements from anyone before we need to go? Okay, all right. Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Thanks for coming today. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us again to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.